Welcome to the 270th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I welcome back to COVID Calls disaster researcher and novelist Malka Older. We're going to continue our discussions about disasters in time, language governance, and disaster justice. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live most weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time and many Fridays at 5.30 p.m. Korea Time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, May 3rd, 2021, there are 3,203,430 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The death toll in the United States has reached 577,045 lives lost to COVID-19. In India, 218,959 people have died. That number is up from 204,832 reported on Friday. And in Brazil right now, they're reporting 407,775 lives lost to COVID-19. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic. I'd like to continue that now. The headline is Manisha Jadav, key administrator at Mumbai Hospital dies at 51. This was written by Jayoti Shalar and was published May 1st, 2021 in the New York Times. When Dr. Manisha Jadav's mother died, she struggled to cope with her grief. Her husband encouraged her to join a karaoke singing class as a distraction, and soon she was posting videos of her performances on social media. She bought two karaoke sets for each one of us, her husband, Dr. Navnath Jadav, said, and in no time, I was singing with her too. Dr. Jadav, the chief medical officer at the group of tuberculosis hospitals in Mumbai, found other outlets for her enthusiasm. After she became interested in photography last year, her husband, a pathologist, said she took a course, watched experts explain their craft on YouTube, went on picture-taking tours, and filled notebooks with observations on camera angles, focus, exposure, and lighting. She also gave her husband a camera so he could share her interest. Dr. Jadav died on April 19th in a Mumbai city hospital. She was 51. The cause was complications of COVID-19, her husband said. Her approach to her hobbies was a reflection of her dedication to her job, which involved managing the hospital's staff and handling operations. When the pandemic hit Mumbai in March 2020, she quickly organized personal protective equipment for the hospital's workers amid a severe shortage, ensured that they had food, and made travel arrangements for the staff when public transport was suspended during the lockdown. She was one of 13 doctors honored for their efforts by the governor of Maharashtra state in December. Doctors are like soldiers, she would say. They can't be unavailable. 
Anisha Ramogade was born in Mumbai on May 11, 1969, to Ram and Ratan Ramogade. Her father was a postal worker, her mother a homemaker. She was the youngest of four siblings. As a kid, she would tell us that she wanted to become a doctor and joke about giving injections, her sister Sunita said. Anisha studied at the Utkarsha Mandir High School in Mumbai and completed her secondary schooling at MVLU College. She was awarded a medical degree by Lokmanya Tilak Municipal Medical College in Mumbai, where she met Navnath Jadav. She also received diplomas in chest medicine and hospital administration. She joined the group of tuberculosis hospitals in 1996 as a clinician and shifted to the administration six years ago. The hospital has been at the center of many strikes and protests, and Dr. Jadav often found herself negotiating with the union and representing the staff, persuading them not to take actions that she felt might affect patient care. If she convinced us to call off a protest, she would also ensure to follow up on our demands until they were met, Pradeep Narkar, a senior member of the labor union, said. On April 14th, her photography class named her Aspiring Photographer of the Year. She attended the online ceremony even as she was unwell, her photography teacher Vidyak Puranek said. Along with her husband and her sister Sunita, Dr. Jadav is survived by her son, Darshan, a medical student in Ukraine, and another sister, Anita. Her brother Ravi died last year. Okay, we're going to turn to our conversation. For today, I'm really have, happy to have Malka Older back on COVID calls. Let me introduce her. Malka Older is a writer, aid worker, and academic, named Senior Fellow for Technology and Risk at the Carnegie Council for Ethics and International Affairs for 2015. She has more than a decade of experience in humanitarian aid and development. Her research interests include intergovernmental relations and crises, the paradox of well-funded disaster responses, measurement and evaluation of disaster response and the effects of competition among actors in humanitarian aid. Malka Older's science fiction political thriller, Infomocracy, was named one of the best books of 2016 by Kirkus, Book Riot, and the Washington Post. She's also the author of the sequels, Null States, which appeared in 2017, and State Tectonics, which appeared in 2018. Her short story and poetry collection, And Other Disasters, came out in late 2019. Malka Older, thanks for joining me again on COVID Calls. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. It's great to be here. You continue to win the uh, late visit to COVID Calls Award. I have guests who come on when it's late where they are. Um, and you've done this multiple times now, so just want to recognize that. But it, let's start out the way we usually do for those who haven't seen you on the program before. Tell us where you're calling from and what the situation looks like there. So I'm in the Netherlands, and um, the situation for me is is cognitively dissonant um, because according to the tracker that I am looking at right now, the dashboard for the country, there were 9,263 confirmed cases today. Uh, it's been variable, of course. It's been pretty up and down, but it's been pretty high for the last um, couple of months. And... This is also one of the slowest uh, countries at vaccination in Europe. Um, so they've done 5.6 million doses, doses, not people, 
um, out of a country of about 17 million. But um, when I walk around outside, uh, it it would be hard to see that it's there's something strange going on. You know, it looks very much like normal life. Um, true that a lot of stores are closed, but a lot of them are doing curbside. Um, there's they've just reopened outdoor uh, eating for pubs, basically outdoor seating. Um, some people wear masks outside, but many do not. Although masks are now required um, instances. So. Uh, while the, the situation is not very, it's not like noticeable uh, when you're when you're in and about. And I think that there's there's not a whole lot. There's not really a sense of urgency right now, which is terrifying. Yeah, I mean, just to follow up on on that in terms of say the Netherlands versus other countries that are very close by, and there mm-hmm. are several there. Um, what's the sense of that when you have countries that are having differential? Rates. I mean, how are the Netherlands, for example, compared, maybe not by the numbers, but just your general perception of it compared to the performance of neighboring neighboring countries there? I mean, of course, it's been mixed. And that's one of the things that I think we've all started to learn um, through this process, right? There have been a couple of countries that did a really good job at the start and have continued to do a good job. Obviously, you know, one, another thing we've learned is that if you can get things, if you can sort of nip it in the bud early on, it makes it a lot easier to control. Um, but the countries that haven't done that at any point, um, we've really seen the standings change up and down, right? So there have been times when France looked a lot worse than the Netherlands and vice versa. Germany on the whole, I think, is has been seen as doing a relatively good job, but they've also had surges. Um, Sweden, of course, has had a lot of very serious problems uh, Italy, you know, had, had a really terrible time last year and they're, they're surging again. So it's, it's really up and down around. Um, but you do see the difference, um, in the way that governments are, are approaching it. And one of, mm -hmm, go ahead. ahead. Well, here they've, for example, they talk about what they call an intelligent lockdown, um, which is when, what they mean by this sort of, you know, we'll trust you to behave yourselves. We're not going to do this sort of thing that France, on the other hand, has done, which has been saying you cannot go more than I think it was one kilometer from your living place. And you have to carry a paper with you at all times saying what your address is so we can confirm that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, there have been countries that have done very strict versions of lockdowns. And here they ha- they have not done that. Um, so you see these different attitudes. And the other thing that they've been doing here, which I find again, kind of terrifying, um, but also sociologically fascinating, is they've been doing these experiments about how they can do normal things safely uh, Mm. in this situation. So they had a whole uh, experiment, this whole project, and I believe it's the government funding private companies to develop this, although I haven't actually looked into it in great detail yet. Um, But they had this project where a group of people were chosen to go on holiday. And so they had to get tested Um, I think they may have had a private plane. They went to an all-inclusive resort in Greece and they had to stay on the resort the entire time. And then they would get flown back and get tested again. So they kind of tied Mm. themselves into all these knots to do something that would sort of feel like it was the normal sort of thing people would do, but also was very restricted. And they've done similar things where they're trying to encourage people to 
get tested in specific ways before going to museums or having events. And, you know, again, it's, you know, it's very understandable that they want to bring back, of course, people's jobs and allow people to do things. Um, but considering this, the situation, it does seem like, you know, maybe some broader measures that would actually bring down infection rates would be even easier, perhaps, than getting these small groups to go through very elaborate hoops to do, you know, a single activity. That's that's amazing. I mean, even just those, that's to, that sounds like a dystopian kind mm -hmm. of TV program, what you just described to me, but I guess this, the whole context sort of fits with that. But also, the, um, as you mentioned, the, the differences between, say, you know, how we perceive what uh, different lockdown phases might be in the Netherlands versus France. Mm -hmm. um, and, it, you know, thinking about that, about, you know, the United States and the ways that different states have managed this. I mean, there's going to be a, we're going to be unpacking for a long time the sorts of perceptions maybe that health officials had of what the culture would tolerate because with that a wide amount of variability there's obviously not just one answer to what we call infection control so those cultural factors are playing are playing a big role and i i think you know i'm here in south korea and the kinds of measures that they take in here um have worked and so it makes you wonder though i mean some of these things that they've done like the technology-based um, the apps and the, the sort of emphasis on on tracking and things like that. I just couldn't see that going down in Texas or, or Florida. It just wouldn't happen. People just wouldn't wouldn't obey it. So the culture does does really matter in the matter in the in all of this and often quite local and quite specific culture, I think. It does matter. Although, you know, I want to also question that a little bit. Um, I mean, I know that there are people here who are as upset and angry as I am. I know that there are people in places where I think it's going very well that are upset and angry at the way it's being handled. Um, so first of all, we have to recognize that culture isn't a monolith. And then again, I think, you know, democracy in all of the places that claim to be democracies is a very imperfect uh connection. You know, it's it's not really tightly coupled between what people want and what the government gives them. Mm. And so while culture and acceptance is part of it, uh, there's also the the kinds of interests and the specific people who are in power and, and their ideas about what government should do. Um, I do want to push back on the surveillance thing for a second, because as someone who's written a book that's largely about surveillance and, and the power of information, you know, as as I am sure you're absolutely right that people would push back against those kind of measures. But at the same time, we are also all, almost all being surveilled at least that much by the companies that sell us apps um, or sell us phones. And, you know, and people don't push back about against that. They think it's worth it to have that phone. Uh, and so, you know, I think that there's, there are ways that it could be done. Um, there's a, yeah, there's a certain amount of, the way the debate is is framed that makes a big difference. Um, but I, I have been thinking about these questions that you bring up and these these ideas about, you know, different people's ideas of not, not only what they can do, but what government should do. Um, I've been thinking about comparisons with other public health issues like uh, smoking hmm. and the different kinds of measures against smoking that I've seen in different places that I've been. So for example, in Japan, long before they out, I don't know if it's the same in Korea actually, but long before they outlawed smoking in bars or restaurants, they outlawed it on major streets. So it was illegal to smoke outside on a major street. 
um, but not inside in a bar. And that had to do with things like um, cleanliness. And there was this idea that the cigarette held in hand might bump into a child and burn them <laughs> and like totally right. different from the, the kind of um, the, the public health ideas that outlawed smoking in, in the States. Uh, and so some of these, the balance of uh, what people owe to other people and under what circumstances and the balance of where the government has a role in that, I think are really important questions that we're kind of only really butting against now and starting to figure out uh, in all these different policies. Just a reminder that you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking with Malka Older today. And uh, for those who'd like to see our previous discussions, and Malka, I don't know if you remember these dates, but we talked on <laughs> July 9th, uh, and I had your also your brother, Daniel, was on for that one. And then also, you were on May 25th, both those last year with Vivian Choi. And so... This is the third time we've had a chance to visit, and thank you for the kindness of your time. It's also really great to to talk with you about what it's meant for you to be thinking about the pandemic over that stretch of time. And I wonder how you how you you know one way I've thought about it is just it's just multiple different disasters. It's it's linked nominally, but it's been through mm -hmm. these many different different phases. And as you were just saying, when you begin to dig into global context. Um, you're going to find not only a lot of pandemics in time, but a lot of pandemics in place, a lot of disasters in place as well. I guess I'm sort of curious now, since we haven't talked since July, how you're really seeing that stretch of time. Does it feel like a continuity to you? Does it feel discontinuous in, in some ways? How are you processing pandemic time? Oof. <laughs> I, you know, and when you say how I think about that time, it's really much more how I feel it, honestly, like, mm -hmm. it is, it is hard to think about it. Um, rationally, it, it has been such a strange year. Um, and, and I think I do feel it as a lot of continuity. Uh, and, and I do feel like we're in a very different place than we were in July, you know, the, the, the vaccines have just been so fast and so amazingly successful. And so, and, and beyond that too, I think we really know a lot. <laughs> we could know a lot about what we should be doing here. And in some ways that makes it more frustrating and more painful and more exhausting um, to look at where we are uh, here, which is not as bad in, as a lot of other places. Uh, and then looking at what's happening in some of those places where it's really bad now in Brazil and in India and in the Philippines, um, you know, it's it's uh, it's it's incredible um, considering how much we we have learned uh, over this this amount of time and how how much farther we could be. Um, and so, you know, on the one hand, I see a lot of hope and on the other hand, a lot of a lot of exhaustion and frustration. It's, it, I'm glad you sort of put it in that context because in some places, you know, it's, there's already some discussion around what you might call post pandemic. I mean, I've heard the term mm -hmm. post COVID mm -hmm. used and in some places it never really arrived. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of case rates that you might say compared to the U S or Brazil or other places. So the experience of waiting, the experience of sort of marking out time of what you might call phases, sometimes in emergency management, they call a sort of disaster cycle. It again has been really variable depending on where where you are in the world. I, it, you've been 
developing language around that. I mean, it's one of the reasons I enjoy following you on Twitter and following your writing is that you have been trying to give us language to talk about this time. One of the terms that I've already taken up and and been using is corona lag. And that and you actually you used that term quite a while ago, but I wonder if you would tell us what what corona lag is. Yeah, and it's absolutely something that I am still feeling and have probably felt throughout this whole time. But um, so corona lag is similar to jet lag. It's when some part of you, uh, William Gibson in, in Pattern Recognition says jet lag is when your soul gets left behind. But it's when some part of you is in a different place than the rest of you. Uh, and, you know, in my case, although I'd, I'd only been living in the Netherlands for uh, three months or four months when the first uh, shutdown happened. And so, you know, most of my friends and, and contacts were still in the U.S. or in other places in the world. Uh, mostly in the U.S. because that's where I'd been living just before here. And so I was seeing and hearing a very different thing in the U.S. than I was experiencing or seeing outside my windows or seeing people talk about it or the way people were acting in the street here. And so it was, as I, as I said before, this dissonance, um, this disjuncture between um, the information that I was getting and the communications I was having with friends and family um, versus what I was seeing around me. And I think we've seen that in, in you know, as I said, there's been ups and downs, right? And so we've seen that across places in different configurations. You know, there was a period over the summer here when we were very low on cases and <laughs> I really wish I'd appreciated it more. I thought they were going to keep at it, but no, we went back up. But at the same time, you know, the U.S. was in a terrible place then. And so even though the case numbers were very low here, I was still registering a lot of that shock and trauma through my virtual connections to the U.S. And, mm. you know, I, I was in a situation where I had just moved. So I had a particularly sort of strong, you know, having part of my head still in, in the place where I had been living. Um, but so many of us now live virtual lives in one degree or another, and even more since the pandemic started. And so, you know, this sense and we had, you know, there are people in diasporas and there are people uh, who have been separated by, by this. Um, and so I think there are a lot of people who are experiencing um, the way that the, the pandemic is unfolding in, in two different places at the same time. And it's, it's very, it's very difficult. Absolutely. It is. And the way you describe that, um, that you're, and there's almost a sort of a safety in this little space where we are, mm -hmm. um, but we don't know what's happening outside the window. You're describing it for me and, and, and I'm describing the situation here, but um, you know, if you're on a larger call, I've thought about this a lot since you started using that term. And if you're on sort of a research call, like I might find myself with people on different continents, we really don't know exactly what they're facing. We might have a national level sense. Mm -hmm. like, well, here's what's happening in Germany, but I don't know what's happening in a particular town where you are. Mm -hmm. And so it can be so different there. And then that feeds back on how we perceive the safety or lack of safety in the place where we are. And, and that manifests mm -hmm. itself now in terms of perception of the vaccine. So you've updated the term a bit. Mm -hmm. uh, and now you've used this term jab lag. So tell us a little bit about that idea. So this is, you know, it's the it's the same. I am seeing people my age in the US getting vaccinated um, very easily. Uh, you know, I just see constantly. And honestly, it, it, it makes me very happy because, as we all know, anyone getting vaccinated is good for all of us. Um, and, and also they're people I care about. So I'm happy to see them getting this. Uh, but it is this dissonance where I'm seeing people saying very easily, you know, walk in, 
you don't have to have any conditions, whatever, any age, they're taking every age now. And, you know, here, uh, that's very much not the case. Um, as I was telling you, what they have listed on their current status on the dashboard is start vaccination of people born in 1952 to 1955 who live at home and are mobile. And that is um, a long way from getting to me. I don't know when it will get to me. Um, and so, and and this is, you know, this is slightly slightly different, right? It, it affects me in some of the same way because, uh, you know, in the, in the psychological, I can't exactly help what my brain is doing about this sense. It almost makes me feel uh, guilty or more anxious because I feel like I'm not doing something I should because I see that other people are getting vaccinated and I kind of feel like I should be doing that even though I know that I can't, right? Um, so that's part of it. But the other part of it is, you know, because the vaccination, unlike the way that COVID surges were going up and down and changing and so on. Vaccination, we're seeing, you know, we're pretty sure that at least for the moment in this this year, however long, hopefully, you know, it's going to be a, a, just an up, up, up and get a lot of people vaccinated. And yeah, it'll probably trail off. And, you know, different countries are going to be following along in more or less that same pattern. And so, and, it, and it's pretty clear also why this difference is happening. Um, and so while there's some of that, that disjunction and that distress, there's also a, a kind of clarity about the way these things are working. And the privilege uh, and the negotiations and uh, the wealth and all these things that go into the way that the vaccine is being distributed. Um, and, you know, I, I have worked as a humanitarian before. Um, I believe very much in solidarity. And I think that if I was looking at a situation where we were saying, okay, you know, the vaccines are going to go globally to frontline workers first everywhere over the world. And then where they're going to go to uh, elderly people everywhere over the world. It might be a longer wait, but I think I would feel much more comfortable about it. I would feel much happier about a wait like that because it would make rational and ethical sense to me. Um, and, you know, and the way it is now, it's, it's, and, and I have to recognize again, my privilege because yes, I'm in a country that's going slower uh, than the United States or the, the UK. Uh, but when I look at other countries that are far behind what the Netherlands, where the Netherlands is, where Europe is, and are in much worse, worse circumstances in terms of infection rates, of course, then I, you know, I have to think that uh, my relative position is is very different. Um, so, you know, I'm, I don't know if I uh, said this on the previous times I was on, but, you know, throughout this, this pandemic, one of the thoughts has been what we can learn from this. Uh, and because obviously this has been a huge shock to global systems. It's been a huge shock to individual people psychologically and, and emotionally. And it's been a huge shock to all of our global systems. And there's there's a lot of opportunity in that for change, for adaptation and for making things better. Um, we haven't seen a lot of that in very solid ways yet. Uh, some, we've seen some bits and pieces here and there. I guess we can we can keep hoping for more. Um, but certainly that kind of clarity about the, the privilege and the differences across nations, you know, having that very visible if, if people are really looking and if people are really paying attention to what it's like in other places, because of course, it's not like this disparity is only in vaccines, right? This is all kinds right. of life-saving technology. This is all kinds of life-enhancing technology. Um, that that also sees that disparity, but 
one thing that disasters do is they tend to make the normal things that we take for granted in normal circumstances much clearer and and direr and so sometimes they allow us to see inequalities in ways that potentially could allow us to to work towards changing them i mean there's so much it, thank you for explaining that jab lag concept that 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 uh, in that detail i mean at one level of it i'm thinking about how i've been processing uh that cognitive dissonance of going from the United States to South Korea in a situation where I left the United States and had become habituated to case rates and death rates and danger. Um, and so still took it seriously, but did something like, like before we left the country, stayed in a hotel, which was terrifying mm. based on the, the previous year that we had been through, you know, 11 months basically being at home and now we're getting ready to leave. And then we come to South Korea where the infection rates are lower at that time when we arrived in February, lower than they had been at any point in my experience of the pandemic in New Jersey. And then within a month, everyone I knew back in the U.S. was getting vaccinated. <laughs> I... so we sort of passed through this terror as like danger, you know, prevalent. And then all of a sudden they're like, oh, and they're, of course they're, they're excited about that. My family's yeah. excited to share they're getting vaccinated because it means that my parents can be with my brothers and sisters and grandchildren and all these things are happening and we're in, in South Korea. It's not happening. Um, not certainly not, not for me. And so I'm having that jab lag experience that you're describing. Mm -hmm. But I think it's an important thing to say about that, um, which is that in both the case of the United States and the case of South Korea, the assumption is that still it's coming and that there's some logic about mm -hmm. that, mm -hmm. that in the United States, it was a sort of typical U.S. approach, like we're not going to prepare for this well, and then we'll wait for technology to bail us out on the other side. And mm -hmm. if there's collateral damage to the tune of hundreds of thousands of people dying, that's something that we'll have to deal with later. In South Korea, it's been an incredibly precautionary approach, mm -hmm. including the way they've approached vaccination and the vaccinations will come. And when they do, they'll be very orderly and they'll be distributed across society. I have no doubt about that. Okay, but those are both very economically privileged countries compared mm -hmm. to some of the other ones you were just describing. And so I want to pick up this other part of jab lag, in which I think I heard you say you're not really surprised, or I sort of there have been so many surprises in this pandemic, but I want to sort of gauge your level of surprise that you haven't seen the vaccination, for example, bringing them to India bringing them to other countries that are in India, of course, has a well-developed economy as well, but to other parts of the world where we have seen just really radical health inequality. And so I wonder about that lag, because that feels like a lag. The South Korea-US lag might have been one you couldn't have predicted a year and a half ago. But maybe some of these other lags are a little bit more predictable, but we don't like to think about it or talk about it. Yeah, I mean... And I say I, we. I mean, the we there is hugely problematic, and I recognize that. Right, right. But it, no, it's but it's true. It's true. I mean, you know, I think we take for granted a lot of things in terms of our health. I mean, even in the U.S., which has this incredibly broken healthcare system, um, but the one thing it does have is these amazing technologies available if you can pay for them, right, or if you have the right insurance to cover them. Um, and so, you know, I think that there's we 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 there's a tendency to forget uh, just how how differentiated that is. Um, you know, if you look at things like prosthetics, or if you look at things like uh, contact lenses, or 
And then you have the flip side, okay? And you have like birth control, which is so much cheaper in other countries than in the US. Uh, so, that, you know, I think that there's there's a lot of of politics that go into healthcare and, uh, across all different ways. I, I feel like if I knew more, I'm not terribly surprised at the way the, the vaccine is playing out. I think if I knew more about the pharmaceutical industry, I probably could have predicted it really well. I don't think that anyone is acting particularly out of character here. And it's it's really sad. Um, but again, you know, this is this is what happened with AIDS drugs. Exactly. Right. Mm. It was the same thing about, oh, we're going to keep the secret of how we make them. We're not going to let knock knockoff happens, even if lots of people die because of that. Um, and that's that's been the model. And it's I think it's something that it, people find easy to ignore until it's something that they can imagine being affected by. And even then, a lot of people find it easy to ignore. Um, but it's and, and you know, and I think also we can see again, not being an epidemiologist, there's probably a case that could be made for countries, you know, individual jurisdictions saying, okay, we're going to just work as hard as we can to get ourselves vaccinated. And if we can clear it here, then that'll be a really good step for everybody. But that would only work if countries were actually shutting themselves off, um, which not many countries have been willing to do through this. The ones that have have generally done kind of decently. Um, although, you know, again, my friends in Australia, the vaccination thing there is not looking good at all. Mm -hmm. uh, but there hasn't, you know, there hasn't been any of that sense of, of thinking collectively about this at all. And that's just, it's, it's so, it's so problematic. It's really scary when we think about this as a, a prologue to climate change or a prologue to any of the other pandemics that could be coming or a prologue to any of the other, you know, I mean, at, at this point, we're such a connected world that uh, disasters really do, even if they happen in one place. I, um, I was, studying at one point, I was, I was in Japan and someone was telling us that there had been flooding in Thailand the year before, very bad flooding. And it had cut the, the um, profits of certain Japanese auto manufacturers by some ridiculous percentage because that's where mm -hmm. they did their manufacturing. Um, and, you know, and then that has follow on impacts to steel and it has follow on impact. And that's just, that's just flooding in one country. Uh, so, you know, we really need to start figuring out ways that, these ridiculous entities of the nation states can can start thinking about things collectively and and the corporations as well because obviously they had a big role in how this has played out uh, and so yes it's 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 quite distressing um, and I see now that the headlines are the U.S. is going to go to the WTO to argue for vaccine something something and and it feels very much like kind of a a greenwashing headline like yes mm -hmm. we're going to go in now and save the day now that you know the us has an overabundance um and it's very very late for other places and and you know this was not even i think that the basic ask here is not even give us some of yours it's just tell us how to make them so we can make them ourselves uh and that is just making the pie bigger and honestly it's it's it's, it's a shame it's the way you describe it. Here we have these sort of dual narratives that people have a have a choice which one they want to adopt. Um, you know, one is that this is a a national, it's a global phenomenon dis discovered and uh, and and experienced nationally and locally, and so you proceed 
in that way, because maybe that's a good way to proceed in terms of emergency management. I, I can't necessarily, if I'm in New York or if I'm in South Korea, I can't necessarily have the same kind of impact as a citizen, let's say, um, or as a policymaker, as, as I would on what's happening in Sweden or Nigeria. Okay, fine. Hmm. But that doesn't negate the other narrative, which is that it is a global phenomenon epidemiologically. So the idea that if you manage it well in Nigeria or South Korea or New York, you're going to end it, that's just not correct. Mm. And so there's that tension constantly. But at some point, and again, this comes back to, I think, to the usefulness of this jab lag concept. At some point, you have to say, we're on the right path here in this particular locality or in this state, in this country. And now we have to really take seriously the sort of broader implications um, of of what this of what this means, and and those implications are not just feeling bad for people. It's actual resources. It's actual yeah. managerial work. Uh, it's, it's actual it, yes. research. And 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 also, you know, I really think we have got to start thinking on a on a multi-level in a multi-level way okay because again this is not the last global challenge we're going to face look at the alien movies okay uh (laughs) we have to think about the the potential for other global disaster challenges or 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 global diplomacy challenges um and we have to be able to think about things at a local level and at a regional level and at a national or let's say something other than national, large scale level and the global level. And we have to find ways to integrate those so that we can have flexibility at the local level and we can have uh, some level of umbrella or blanket at the global level that prevents either in this terrible phrase, but the the race to the bottom or prevents Mm -hmm. people from entering into these vicious cycles of competition or prevents people from just, you know, ruining the planet because they are selfish we have got to figure out a way to be thinking on a global scale at the same time as we, you know, act locally and think locally and and tailor things, customize things locally. And I think we see that happening. It's been the project of federalism. You know, that is the project of federalism in the United States. It's kind of warped now, but that that is still one of the big things that that we argue about in the United States is how we balance between those levels. Um, it's certainly the project of uh, the European Union, and we see it happening in other parts of the world as well with ASEAN. Um, but, you know, yeah, we got to step it up. Just a reminder that uh, you're listening to COVID Calls, and I'm talking to Malka Older today about a number of different topics. So we're talking right now about some of these concepts of time that might be useful in helping us understand the pandemic as it's playing out in different parts of the world at different times. Just to come back, one more piece of this I wanted to sort of talk with you about. You know, there was so much, I think rightfully, so much pessimism about the possibility of the continuation of, you know, the efficacy of the Paris Accord, for example, the sort of global, you know, efforts uh, to address climate change in quite serious ways and having individual nations set benchmarks that then sort of coheres as part of a global framework. And that all sounds good and it's important and the process is important 
And then the United States and Brazil and Australia all say, well, we're not interested in that or something like, you know, a few countries can wreck the, the larger project for a much larger number of countries. And there was so much pessimism around that, particularly in the winter um, of 2019 and 2020. And then you did have the lockdown, this sort of global process, which to me felt I don't know what the right word for it is. I still haven't quite figured out how to even talk about it. it I felt it almost exhilarating in a way mm. because you saw this collective, massive collective action, which for mm. most people was still not about saving their own lives. It was about mm. slowing the spread of a disease. So it was really about, it was undertaking something that was not comfortable, locking mm. yourself in your house, not going to work, not letting your children go to school to protect some other people who mm. you might not even know whom you'd protected. And that was happening at a global scale. So that felt to me like a correction to a little bit about some of that pessimism about global, the possibility for global collective action. So you can talk me out of that. So maybe I was seeing that wrong. But on the other hand, too, it's like I almost don't even remember that phase of the pandemic now, so long ago. <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to talk you out of it. I think there's some optimism there. As I said before, you know, I think there's I think there's an acceleration that comes from just from the, the fact that life can change so radically uh, in a sort of voluntary way. It was sort of voluntary, as you say at the beginning, particularly. And, and you know, I think it's one of the, the, the biggest dangers is getting caught in this trap, uh, which we're encouraged in by a lot of rhetoric um, from people who have power, right? Uh, whether it's governments or corporations or, or individuals who, are, who, who don't want things to change to say, this is just the way it is. This is inevitably the way it is. Uh, human nature would always bring us to this part. The free market, which would always bring us to this point. This is, you know, this is where technology was always going to go. And that's just not true. You know, all of those things have been very different over different points in history. Um, we can point at technologies that people have decided not to pursue or have not pursued um, to the extent that they could have, you know, none of this is, is an inevitable unfolding. And so I think when we see uh, the pace of life and, and the, the, the sort of, you know, really the stuff we take for granted, when we see that kind of cracked open, um, particularly, like I said, by people doing it themselves, it shows that we can, in fact, live a different way. Um, you know, and, and I said before, I haven't seen that many indications of people making the radical change that I think is really necessary um, for us to all live better lives in the future. But we do see some some elements of that. Like I'm seeing a lot more conferences offering um, virtual the virtual option, even as they're starting to go back to uh, in person. And that is it's a tiny thing in a way, but it's also a huge thing when you think about how much travel is is incurred and how many people can't go to conferences um, because they can't afford it or because they have families or because whatever reason. Um, so we're starting to see people a little bit think differently about what the normal is and what things have to be like. Uh, I wish it were more. <laughs> I really wish that it was it was much more wise and deep. Um, but, you know, that's what we continue to work for. And just to stay with us a little bit longer. You write um, a series um, for foreign policy. You're, um, all, I think almost every month you have a piece in, in foreign <laughs> policy. And I hope people will check these out. And you've been on um, the last two months in, in March and April, you wrote about sort of themes of scarcity and wealth and the pandemic. And I just, well, there's one headline here. I'm just going to read a couple sentences from this. You wrote about, the headline was GDP 
So gross domestic product didn't save countries from COVID-19. And you write, the terrifyingly global progression of COVID-19 over the past year should shake long-held, long-held assumptions about the benefits of wealth and industrial technological development, estimations of which countries were best prepared for a pandemic display those prejudices in full. The 2019 Global Health Security Index, jointly produced by Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security and the Nuclear Threat Initiative, ranked the U.S. at the top with the United Kingdom immediately behind it, then the Netherlands and Sweden only a few rows down. So the assumption is that wealth tracks very well with freedom, I guess, and democracy. You didn't say that. (laughs) But that's one of the assumptions that's out there and that with health and with disaster preparedness. Yeah, I think the assumption is that wealth can buy you out of anything, can buy you out of disasters and can buy you out of disease and um, maybe off the planet and uh, and and whatever you want. Um, And and, you know, that's really false. And that's something that I've seen, you know, my. Uh, my dissertation on disaster sociology was on disasters happening in in very wealthy countries. I looked at Katrina and I looked at the tsunami in Japan. And I wanted to do that because I think it's too easy for people to say that when a disaster happens in a poor country, oh, you know, of course it was a poor country. Of course they, they fumbled the response, even when the response was funded by the international community to the tune of millions and millions. When we look at disaster responses in um, developed countries, uh, in wealthy countries, uh, in democratic, stable countries, uh, we often see really similar messes in terms of how they're managing it. And I think a big part of that has to do with that very wealth and the sort of hubris that says we don't have to do social organizing. We don't have to worry about nature and we don't have to um, you know, put up uh, natural uh, watershed guards against surge or... Um, you know, we don't have to do that difficult work. All we have to do is throw lots and lots of money and technology at whatever problem comes up and we'll be fine. And, you know, if you read like um, Sherry Fink's uh, Five Days at Memorial, which is an absolutely brutal account of a hospital during Katrina, um, that's one really good example. It's a, she, it's a private hospital that she looks at. And in fact, the public hospital did a lot better because they were much more used to dealing with blackouts. In the private hospital, they they were not prepared for it because they didn't think they could lose lose, uh, power for that long. Um, That's actually what happened um, with uh, with, uh, Fukushima as well. They lost grid electricity. And yes, it is absolutely true that rich people in rich countries are generally going to be better off when a disaster hits. Yes, I'm not disputing that. Um, But rich people in the rich countries have the potential to prepare themselves so much better and to do uh, so much more of the work. And um, and they, they squander it because they think they will just be able to throw money and technology at the problem. And we've seen uh, that, in fact, in some cases during this pandemic, it has been, in some cases, the poorer countries that have done better than rich countries. There are a lot of... Um, less wealthy countries that I would rather have been in for the duration of this than in either the Netherlands or the United States. And that's, you know, it's unusual. And again, you know, the rich people have mostly, not entirely, but mostly been able to insulate themselves from this. Yes. Uh, But what we're seeing is that it's not, it's not by any means um, a panacea. It's not that when you're rich, you're automatically going to save yourself from all of this. And if we look at the, the things that have worked, you know, the things that have worked have been things like trust in government, have been things like communities working together, um, have been things like transparency. 
And again, I don't want to go too hard on those things because I do think it's a bit early to be talking about the things that worked. Uh, but I think we can definitely talk about things that didn't work. Um, and 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 wealth is one of them. And hubris is is definitely one of them. And I think that we we need to be to start thinking differently about our aims and our aspirations and the things that we want in a country that we live in or the things that we're, we're aiming for. And we have to start thinking more about building uh, communities and building trust and building government that works for people as opposed to um, trying to build a GDP that also, you know, very much obscures the inequality within a country. I hope people will check out those those articles that you had in foreign policy. I want to thank uh, Gisha you, for this comment you made, which Malka was just addressing. Isn't it the case, Gisha writes, that rich people in rich countries are able to save themselves while the poor people in poor countries suffer? And I think we that there's no dispute there. Um, one thing that, um, based on what you were just talking about, Malka, though, that strikes me about the United States, for example, is that poll after poll indicates that people think they're wealthier than they are. Mm. And and I I really see that uh, sort of playing itself out. You know, if, if people imagine a sort of a, a trajectory for themselves as earners over their lives, and maybe this is uh, it's hard to generalize about the United States, but let's say middle class people who have access to college education and to political access, they tend to have traditionally thought of themselves as upwardly mobile. Um, there may be some corrections about that since 2008, but that's the way U.S. has been, the United States has been characterized, and polls indicate that. But this pandemic should be, that's it's tough medicine in that regard, hmm. because the, the systems that people had assumed would be there for them weren't there for them. Hmm. And so uh, to be upper middle class in the United States, which is to be wealthy in most of the world, has not been um, this did you say so at the aggregate level, I agree with you completely. And then even inside of a country, how mm -hmm. one perceives their own position has really been, um, I think, laid bare at this time. And so mm -hmm. those those safety nets, which may be stronger in countries that have had to deal um, mm -hmm. with disasters that have been shared equally across a society that has less. I think we've really got to look at those kind of comparatives to understand the way this pandemic has worked. Yeah, absolutely. And and I do hope that, um, I mean, I'm a big believer in comparative studies. And I, I do hope that we, you know, I think one of the, the problems that we face in a lot of mobilization is how stuck people are within their own um, countries. And the, and, and the sort of news that they hear is all about what's happening in their own country. And there isn't enough of that comparison for them to say, oh, I need to demand better about X, Y, and Z. I mean, you see that in the U.S. all the time when people say it's the best healthcare system in the world, um, when in fact, you know, it's it's among peer nations, it's one of the most expensive with the worst outcomes. Uh, and so, you know, I, I hope that we can figure out ways uh, that people can get more of a view of how governments work in other places and and really push for for better government. Seems like we also just need to continue to have this conversation about sacrifice mm. and those who willingly sacrifice and those who get drawn into the sacrifice. I mean, I've been recently rewatching a documentary about the Vietnam War. Hmm. Uh, my oldest son is old enough now, and we're sort of talking about the Cold War and talking about the Vietnam War. And I can't help but think about, you know, the rhetoric I grew up with about the great national sacrifice that brought about the end of the Cold War. But you look <laughs> at Vietnam, and you think of who sacrificed in, in America, in the United States, for that war. 
And that sacrifice was not shared equally. Most of our political leadership opted out of that sacrifice and then go on to benefit by it politically. And I think, so there you have a case with a, a wealthy country expressing its power around the world and it's in this great victory is celebrated in the 1980s and 1990s. But if you really look closely at it, that sacrifice wasn't equal. By, mm -hmm. and, and the rewards of that, such as they may have been economically, were not shared. So no. we're just seeing it again. Mm. Sorry to go off on a crazy tangent about no, I think more, but I, I think it's somehow right, pulling these histories the, up is important, I think. It is. And it's the pattern that we see again and again. And it's the rhetoric that we hear again and again. I was thinking I, a couple of years ago, I was able to visit the war museum in Ypres, um, the, the First World War, which is a, a, an incredible museum and really devastating. <laughs> um, just, just incredible. And that was... You know, that was the not first, but one of the first modern wars um, where people were fighting theoretically, you know, for democracy, theoretically not, you know, it wasn't like a feudal army where they had no choice but to ride out. Uh, and it wasn't mercenaries. And you look at the amount of propaganda that went into getting people to, to go to war. Um, and, and of course, that was also the war where they, they would shoot people for cowardice if they tried to desert. Um, and, and you see the, like, it's just this incredible, um, force of, of, of rhetoric and of power trying to get people to sacrifice themselves. And it's really, it's really painful and astonishing. And that is absolutely, you know, there's a straight line from there to the ads for recruitment that you see on television or during a sports game, or, you know, the way that people talk about service and the military in the United States today. One of the ways that uh, my guest, Malka Older, processes the world is not only through her academic work, but also as a novelist. And that's one of the cool benefits about having you as a guest, Malka, is that maybe we can also prevail upon you to share a little bit of your fiction. And so uh, you very kindly agreed to read a little passage from your 2016 novel, Infomocracy. Maybe you can set this up for a little bit and see how that work written before this pandemic somehow comes back to you at this time. Sure. Um, so the, the novel takes place uh, in the future around 2060, 2070. Um, and it's a future in which the nation state is mostly defunct. Uh, and it's been replaced by these smaller units called sentinels that are based around population. Um, so 100,000 people makes a sentinel. And that means it could be a couple of dense city blocks, or it could be, you know, a large stretches of rural area. And each of them can vote for any government it wants out of all the governments that exist in the world, about 2000. So that means if you're moving through a city, as one of the characters does in this passage, you're going to cross through a lot of different governments. Um, and this, this passage takes place just after a pretty large earthquake uh, happens in Tokyo. Um, something that is very much a predicted disaster uh, uh, that there's a lot of concern about. Um, and uh, so it's, it's, it describes a little bit um, how that plays out across these different governments. So I was, I was thinking about it because we have been seeing um, so clearly those of us who, who've been looking, how different governments have been dealing with this disaster very, very differently and what that tells us about, about those, those governments and their choices. So the character, Ken, has been, um, he works for a government called Policy First, and he's been kind of, 
you know, he just got into Tokyo and he's been in the office trying to help with all the triage and the disaster response. When Suzuki finally tells him that he should go check on his apartment some 14 hours after he started working, it takes Ken almost an hour to get there. The public transportation, which normally works by compiling all requests and calibrating the optimal route, is completely down because of the information disruption. Ken thinks about hitching, but the faces he sees in the driver's seats are uniformly pinched with worry. Even on foot, it shouldn't have taken him that long, but he keeps stopping, stunned by the sight of another building toppled, a pile of wreckage from some landmark, and, once, an arm protruding from under a slab of concrete. His antennae twitch so many times that he turns them off. Twice, he stops for aftershocks, darting in a panic into the middle of the street along with everyone else as the buildings around them tilt vertiginously. He notices the differences in the sentinels he passes. Heritage has obviously thrown much of its considerable weight into Tokyo. A helicopter is hovering over their sentinel in Shinjuku. In Liberty's territory, government staff with manual loudspeakers are announcing the locations of shelters and food distributions. Emergency crews are running through Ken's own sentinel and he feels a spike of pride in policy first. Boots on the ground are better than expensive giveaways or large machinery any day. He's dully surprised to find his own building still standing and immediately starts calculating the possibility of a hot shower. Not good, he decides, trying to keep his hopes low. When he gets closer, he can tell that something's not right. Rounding the corner, he sees a long vertical crack running up the building next to the exterior staircase, which is blocked off by a string of tape. Again, props to policy first for addressing structural instability so quickly. Ken hesitates by the entrance, wondering whether there's anything in there worth risking a quick run in. The ground vibrates and he backs away. He considers going back to the office to sleep as any loyal worker should. But all day, as he sobered up, he's been having flashbacks to the night before, her hair against his face, her arms pulling him close. Before she let him off in the morning, Mishima told him she was going to try to moor above the information offices. It's not far. Besides, given the option, he'd rather sleep off the unsteady ground tonight. It takes him twice as long as he thought it would to walk there. He has to detour twice around pieces of skyscrapers that are now effective roadblocks, and the aftershocks continue almost regularly. Ken finds himself treading as if the ground were shaking, even when it's not. As the night deepens, the cold presses against him. His jacket has heating, but Ken forgot to recharge it last night, didn't even think about it during the day, and now it's running low. He turns the optimal temperature down a couple of degrees, hoping it will last longer, and hunches his shoulders, thinking of all the people who ran outdoors this morning, uh, yesterday, with no coat, and watched their belongings disappear into a dust-filled mound of crumbled concrete. When his stomach rumbles, it occurs to him that he has barely eaten all day. He can remember at least two raids on the policy-first office cache of tea time snacks, but no actual meals. Now he can't stop thinking about how hungry he is and, more disturbingly, whether he'll be able to get any food. Three arduous blocks and one terrifying highway overpass later, he sees the dancing blue animation of a Lawson sign. The convenience store is tucked into the ground floor arcade of an office building, at least six stories, but after an uneasy glance up, Ken decides to risk it. The empty shelves on the convenience store 
the empty spaces on the convenience store shelves contradict the rules of daily life in Tokyo and shake him as much as the grander scenes of destruction. It is more believable that skyscrapers crumble than that he can't get an onigiri at three in the morning. He stares at the few items left on the ramen shelf for a long moment, waiting for his information to pop up with the price and ratings rundown, then remembers that they're not going to appear. He grabs a couple of bags of senbei, a handful of chocolate bars, and five cans of coffee, but stops short halfway up the aisle when he realizes that, without an information connection, there is no way to pay. He cautiously approaches the auto clerk and finds a handwritten note. Thank goodness his visual translator doesn't require a live connection. The reader has been reconfigured to accept details via line of sight and will bill him later. It is something of an honor system since the anti-theft had to be turned off and Ken is grateful for it. He zaps in his details, adds a small thank you to the others scrawled in various languages at the bottom of the note and continues on his way. A reading there from her 2016 novel, Infomocracy by Maka Older. That's so great. I mean, there's so much <laughs> in, in that in that small. I mean, first of all, you're such you pay so much attention to the way people describe the experience of being a disaster, and so it's a novel that's greatly influenced by your own understanding of of the realities and, of disaster, right? And by myself having been in disasters. Right. I mean, a lot of that is 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 me remembering being stuck in aftershocks in Japan, and that it, it's. Also, too, in that in that short passage, I mean, you really capture this idea that he's sort of simultaneously aware of his sort of political identity, that he's crossing boundaries, um, thinking about his pride, the irrational kind of pride in, in mm -hmm. a sort of identity that's related to a national boundary. But then he's also dealing with the global supply chain and mm -hmm. he's dealing with a uh, sort of corporate identity as he goes into the Lawson, which is a ubiquitous mm -hmm. Japanese experience. It's a lot to manage identity in a disaster, isn't it? Yeah, and also kindness of people in, you know, and opening up this honor system and, and the people being grateful for it and writing personal notes. And yeah, there's, there's a lot of disaster sociology packed into this passage. I was working on my dissertation at the time when I wrote it. So <laughs> that might show a little bit. But I mean, I guess as a, as a method for you, we've talked a little bit about this before on COVID calls using fiction, it, you use it as a way to understand confounding realities that you're interested in understanding, or you use it as a way to create worlds that you want people to inhabit, or I guess you don't have to choose those things. It's up to you. But can you say a little bit more about how you use it as a process? Because as I understand it, it's your, your fiction work is in conversation with your other research. And I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely an all of the above sort of sort of situation because it's, you know, it, fiction is a kind of, I think, very powerful uh, thought experiment or modeling approach that can let us try out different ideas, different solutions. Um, and, you know, I think part of my job in writing fiction is to try to be as rigorous as I can in making sure that people do act the way and they react the way that they would um, in real life. And that's, that's what makes it valuable as, as a model or as a thought experiment. So there's that. Um, there's definitely escapism. I've used writing fiction um, as escapism a lot over this past year. 
Uh, because, you know, if you're building a world, if you're trying to imagine an entirely different world, whether it's this world in the future, this world in a different past, even this world in the actual past, because we don't know what that was like, and we have to imagine it, even, you know, a different person's life right now in the present, there's, if you do it right, you know, it really takes a sustained kind of focus and concentration of, of that imagination. And that's, um, that can be useful for for sort of escapism, um, and and also for for relativizing what you're going through. You know, um, for thinking about the, the the other kinds of difficulties and terrors and um, complications that that people have lived or might live or will live. Uh, so yeah, all all of the above. Um, it's definitely uh, it's definitely a way for my mind to work out a bunch of of different things. <laughs> All of the historians listening, just like me, just j jumped up in their chairs and said, yeah, it's a way to imagine the actual history of this world because mm -hmm. we don't, we work hard to try to know, but we have to take imaginative leaps to understand the real history as well. So it's a method um, for disaster researchers, for historians, and I think um, for people generally to try to make sense of the things because the historical record is mostly gaps. It's mm -hmm. not mostly things we know, it's mostly things we don't. And we work with the evidence that we have and we do our very best. But there's a lot of imaginative leaps that go in there. And um, I guess we'll, we need to wrap up because it's getting late where you are. And I want to let you, um, you know, be able to get some rest. But I guess the sort of last thing I want to ask you is, is, is there, is there a COVID-19 novel coming? I mean, is this, is this what you're, you said you on July 9th when we talked and when your brother Daniel was on too, you both talked a lot about writing and people can go check out that episode if they want to hear more about Malka reflecting on fiction and, and the role of writing in her life. And it's a great conversation between two siblings too. But I wonder just to put you on the spot a little bit, are we going to see some of this pretty, pretty soon this work? Um, for me specifically, I'm sure we're definitely going to see a lot of, of novels about this. I, I just, um, I actually just finished a, a novella, a short novel that you know, had a sort of initial trigger many years ago and, but that I, I wrote pretty quickly over the last several months and uh, that I thought was, you know, kind of a combination of a fun sort of setting and voice that I enjoyed inhabiting and some concerns about uh, the environmental future. And then I, I realized after or at some point as I was writing it that actually quite a bit of it was really about uh, the experience of of lockdown and, um, or not lockdown actually so much as the experience of, of feeling like you are in transit, like you are in a temporary non-normal situation and that urge to get back to normalcy combined with um, sort of the questions about how to get back to normal in the right way. And I really, I really did not completely realize what I was doing until I was quite into it. And I don't know if other people will, will notice this or read it in that way. Um, although if it does come out, I will certainly talk about it in that way. Uh, but, you know, I think that these experiences always, always work themselves into, into fiction they're not always legible um, for other people, mm -hmm. and that's actually okay. And sometimes there are things that other people will will get out of my fiction that I did not know I was putting in there, um, and that's absolutely fine and, and actually really wonderful. Um, yeah, to, that's thrilling to hear about. So, so yes, the, it is definitely coming. You may or may not recognize it when you see it, <laughs> and there may be some things that are more clearly linked. Um, I don't know yet, 
but uh, okay. but at least there's that one. I'm getting you on the record for this. You realize that so that in a few months when I ask you to come back on COVID calls, we'll have this marker to then come back and say, you remember you were telling us that you know, you're working on some of these ideas and, and I'm excited to hear about the novella and any other work that you want to come back and talk about with us in the future. Just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time with most Fridays now reserved 5.30 p.m. Korea time for discussions based in South Korea. And tomorrow, please join me. We'll be having a discussion at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time about uh, immunosuppressed populations and the pandemic. And I want to take a second here just to thank Malka Older for sharing your brilliance. And I really enjoyed the conversation today as usual. Thank you so much for having me. It's it's um, it's actually really a pleasure to get to talk through some of these ideas and, and di- problems and difficulties in, in such detail and thoroughness. It's, it's actually pretty cathartic. So thank you so much for having me. Anytime. Come back anytime. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Mm-hmm.